to JW Forwardcast, the show that helps former Jehovah's Witnesses take back control of their lives and become the people they were always supposed to be. Happy New Year, everyone. It is 2019. Uh, I hope that your New Year's celebrations were wonderful and that your hangover was uh, <laughs> painless as possible. Um I actually didn't have a hangover. I didn't. This is going to sound weird. I didn't actually drink anything New Year's Eve. Um, I had a bit of an interesting New Year's Eve. It was cool. It was fun. But I didn't exactly go out partying. So uh, unlike last New Year's Eve, where I think I had a quite spectacular hangover. So, you know, it's it's an improvement. It's going well. But yeah, I hope you're all having a good 2019. Um, towards the end of 2018, you may have heard somewhere echoing in the distance the sound of new swear words being invented. If you heard that, um, you know, profanity floating across the wind as if from some distant location, that was me. Uh, This episode should have been with you before the end of the year. Um, I had some technical gremlins. Uh, Garage Band ate this podcast not once, but twice. So, uh, I want to put an apology to everybody, including to my guest today, Martin Hawke, for the delay in getting this episode up. Thankfully, um, I have been able to beat the gremlins inside my computer to death with a pointy stick, and I was managing, obviously managed now to get the, the episode edited and up to you. Um, but I just want to apologise for that. I'm hoping I shouldn't get any repeats of the technical gremlins uh, now that I think we've we've exposed them all to sunlight. I think that's what you do, isn't it? The movie Gremlins, yeah, you don't get them wet because then they multiply. You don't feed them after midnight because then they turn into proper gremlins. And if you expose them to sunlight, it kills them. So I've exposed my laptop to sunlight. Uh, We've killed all the gremlins. And now all I have now is just the little cute, cuddly mogwai gizmo thing left. So we're in a good position. So before we move on to our guest today, uh, we've just got a little bit of a housekeeping. Firstly, um, you may notice if you follow me on Twitter that every morning at 6.30am I'm posting a picture of my cup of coffee as I get up. That's because I have a New Year's resolution to get up at 6.30 every day and start getting stuff done. Uh, And I've tweeted publicly about this because I want to make myself accountable. So for the next uh, year minimum, you are going to see, if you follow me on Twitter, at Covert Fade, you're going to see me start the day with a cup of coffee. Uh, I've given myself the weekends off because obviously weekends are downtime. However, at the moment, I'm still, even at the 6.30 on the weekend, I'm still getting up because I want to burn that habit into my brain from what i understand any new habit at first especially if it's a difficult one like you know getting up early you've really got to keep doing it to keep it burned into your head so that's what i'm doing so if you see me tweeting a cup of coffee at 6 30 and you're wondering what on earth's going on well that's what on earth is going on i actually have a number of new year's resolutions this year and i've um, popped them onto patreon if you um, follow me on Patreon, um, and you'll see this this video went up for everybody. Um, usually the Patreon-only content is for the $3 a month subscribers and up. But I actually made that video available to everybody, and because I, partly because it's got a thank you in to all my Patreon supporters, but also because I wanted to talk about my New Year's resolutions and be candid about a few things, because some of the resolutions I talk about are fairly trivial, but some of them are actually quite um, quite personal. And a little bit difficult to talk about, but I feel like I feel like it's important sometimes to talk about things that are meaningful and changes that are meaningful to make, and that you know you have to be honest with yourself sometimes. 
and look yourself in the mirror and then make the changes even if you don't want to make them. Um, so I popped those resolutions up on Patreon. Um, so if you're a supporter, you can go check them out. Um, and if you start supporting me on Patreon, you'll also get access to it as well. Speaking of Patreon, I have some new Patreon supporters to give a shout out to. A huge thank you to Javier Ortiz, Ray Mansfield, Maria T. Gomez, Troy Barnes, and Harry Parry. Guys, thank you so much for your very kind support. It is very much appreciated. And just an additional shout out to my very kind Patreons who need to remain anonymous. Uh, I understand what that's like because I need to remain anonymous as well. Um, thank you for your support. You know who you are um, and you're also just as much appreciated. Uh, another way to support the show is to leave us a review or a star rating on iTunes, Stitcher or Podbean or wherever it is you listen to the podcast. I'll also, if there's any written reviews, I promise to read them out on the show. Uh, so go for it. Even if it's a review that's absolutely scathing and critical, I'll still read it out. And also thank you to everyone who's sharing the show on social media, on Facebook, Twitter. Uh, you can also check out our YouTube uh, channel as well covert fade on youtube um, there's some podcast content and some also some non-podcast content and i'm going to try and get some more non-specific um non-podcast specific stuff on there that's uh, only exclusive to the youtube channel so check it out so housekeeping all done it's time to get on to the interview this is an interview with Martin Hawke. Martin's a name that you may have already heard of quite a few times, actually, if you've been following the ex-Jehovah's Witness community or indeed following the, uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer uh, and other media publications discussing the subject of child abuse inside the Jehovah's Witnesses because Martin and his family, uh, unfortunately, have had direct experience of how the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society deals with, or rather fails to deal with, accusations of child abuse. Martin and I cover a wide range of subjects. We talk about not only the abuse that his uh, daughter went through, but we also talk about how they were able to help her recover and move forward, because that's a big part of this podcast, is how do you pick up the pieces and start moving forward again. We also discuss other things like uh, Thanksgiving, Halloween, the movie Deadpool, which is, if you haven't seen Deadpool, go out and see Deadpool, unless you're offended by really 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 funny strong violence um in which case maybe don't see deadpool uh, i'm very grateful for martin for having come on the show and i'm also very sorry to martin that it took this long for me to get the episode out there but um yeah without further ado i give you martin hawk Hey everyone, so welcome back to the Forwardcast. My guest today is Martin Hawke. Martin was born into a family of Jehovah's Witnesses. He married a Jehovah's Witness, started a family in the religion, and made progress through the faith's rank structure, becoming first a ministerial servant and eventually an elder, a position of spiritual leadership in the congregation. However, his faith was thrown into crisis when he became aware that his daughter had been sexually abused by his JW cousin. When this abuse came to the attention of the congregation elders, it was the start of a series of shocking events that ultimately led to Martin and his family leaving the Jehovah's Witness religion. Martin has since become an outspoken critic of the way the religion handles accusations of child sex abuse. He and his family have made multiple media appearances discussing this issue, including newspaper articles in the Philadelphia Inquirer and the York Daily Newspaper. 
They've also campaigned for the abolition of the statute of limitations on child sex abuse in their state and for other measures to make it easier for abusers to be brought to justice. Martin Hawke, welcome to the Forwardcast. Thank you for having me, Covert. Cool. So how are you doing? How's your, how's your week unfolding? It's really great. We had an awesome Thanksgiving, our holiday last week in the United States, and uh, I'm looking forward to Christmas just a few weeks away. Yeah, there's, you, you guys have got a, a wonderful clutch of forbidden holidays coming together in the U.S. You, you get Thanksgiving and then you get Christmas all in, all in one lovely pagan-y, pagany festival. Yes, uh, it was difficult the first few years after leaving, but I'm really starting to enjoy the holidays now. Cool. Maybe that's actually something we can return to later on in the discussion, because I think that's something a lot of XJWs have is that initial that initial weirdness about celebrating Christmas, which or some of the holidays, which later on becomes, I love this. So maybe that's something we can, we can chat about um, a bit later in the podcast. Um, obviously I think, I think we've got, um, we've had you before on Watchtower in focus um, for people who haven't heard it. If you go to Lloyd Evans's um, John Cedar's channel, there's an entire episode um, I think dedicated to, the details of, of your family's story right about the time this story broke in the newspapers. And I know you've also discussed the story, your story in detail on Reddit and also in the newspapers as well. But for the benefits of our listeners who perhaps um, haven't, haven't seen those before or perhaps relatively new to the issue, could you give us a quick overview of, of your, your family's story and, and your journey from being Jehovah's Witnesses to being ex-Jehovah's yeah. Witnesses? So it starts in 1919. My great-grandmother's uncle became a Bible student. Uh, he became a coal porter after that. He witnessed to all of his family members. Only my great-grandmother became a Bible student. She was baptized in 1924. Um, she raised all five of her kids as Bible students, eventually Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, three of the five stayed in. My grandmother, my great-aunt, and my great-uncle. After World War II, my grandmother was living in Baltimore. My one aunt I uh, was living in Oregon, and my uncle was living in Indiana, but they were all Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, back then, you know, it wasn't stressed too much to uh, marry Jehovah's Witnesses, so my grandma did marry an atheist, actually, and uh, she had three kids, but she had a horrible marriage. Eventually, he left her, and um, uh, she married a Jehovah's Witness man, and, uh, you know, she raised her, her kids as Jehovah's Witnesses. My two uncles were in this fellowship right around the Vietnam War, and they never came back. But my mother was baptized in 1965. She went to El Salvador to pioneer in 1970. She married my dad in 1973. Uh, he, he got contacted in June of 59 as an 11-year-old boy. His, his mother, my grandmother, and him studied, started to study at the same time. 11 months later, in May of 1960, they were baptized. Uh, he became... Um, he went to became a pioneer in 1965. Went to Bethel in 68, and uh, married my my mom in 73. They were sent by the branch to uh, West Virginia to be a presiding overseer slash pioneer couple. They had three kids from 75 to 78. My dad continued to serve as an elder, and uh, I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness from the time I was born. Uh, my other uncle was at Bethel. My aunt was at Bethel, and her husband, my uncle, he is. Um, a director of the corporation as last as I know. So I have a long history on both sides of my families. All my aunts and uncles on my dad's side were pioneered, either were elders or married elders. And uh, all my cousins are witnesses or still are witnesses. Nobody really drifted away. I was the first one in this great family on, on both sides to leave. Um, 
I started pioneering in 1995 when I graduated. I uh, married my wife in 97. We both pioneered together until 2000 when she became pregnant with our daughter. I was a ministerial servant from the time for 99. And I was 22 when I got appointed a servant. So I just missed the cutoff that uh, Tony Moore says you can't marry people if you're <laughs> not a ministerial servant by 23. I'd switched congregations, and the new congregation, the coordinator, actually the presiding overseer at the time, didn't like me. So that's why it was no big deal. Um, and then because of my daughter's abuse, because of the way I handled it, because I called the branch, basically I was punished. I was not deleted as a ministerial servant, but they took my privileges away for a little bit. And then in 2011, I was appointed an elder at 34. Um, and the first elders meeting I was in, the one elder said, if you never called the branch, we would have appointed you a serve, an elder years ago. So basically I was punished because I didn't follow the corporation's rules and guidelines. Um, I served for an elder for exactly five years and two weeks until um, I was deleted for apostasy, but we can get into that later. So that's just the basic synopsis of my GW history. I mean, there's lots of other things that we did over the years. I was a group overseer of a Nepali foreign language group in Pennsylvania. I started a group in 2015. We had about 30 members coming in, in central uh, Pennsylvania. I was a service overseer for the past two, last two and a half years as an elder. For six straight years, we did unassigned territory in Kentucky, West Virginia, Virginia, upstate New York. We've been to international conventions. You know, we, we visited Bethel many times. Uh, my sister was at Bethel for 20 years until this year when um, she left Bethel to take care of my parents. So I have, you know, a lot of history with the organization. Yeah, I think it, it's it sounds like one of, that's one of those families, um, and I, I know many families like this who, you know, there's like three or four generations back, the the, the parents first come into the truth as they as they call it, um, and then there's people who serve in Bethel and they they've got what they sometimes term as a rich spiritual history. And I remember reading through your your story on Reddit, which I'll put a link to in the show notes. It, it's clear that your family's been, you know, involved with the Jehovah's Witnesses for a very long time, and it's it's kind of the actual details which you actually allude you alluded to there very briefly. The timeline from you sort of discovering the first instance of your daughter's abuse. Could you quickly lay out the events that happened from that first discovery of that abuse all the way up to that final? realization you had that you had to leave the organization yeah so it's the, the newspaper articles kind of condensed the instances there was actually three different instances at the kingdom hall with my daughter and my cousin my uncle my dad's younger brother was deleted as an elder in the neighboring congregation in the summer of 2005 now we didn't know why he got deleted we just knew so he was upset he moved into our congregation which is only about a six mile drive, but he still stayed at his house. And um, we found out later what was the reason was why he got deleted as an elder. Well, so within a few weeks, October, uh, the first Wednesday in October, 2005, you know, I was conducting the group for field service. I was a ministerial servant and my uh, cousin was there. He's much younger than I am. He was a teenager at the time, my uncle's son. And, uh, well, my, my wife left right after the meeting field service. She had a Bible study at nine 30 with another pioneer sister. So this was October of 2005. My wife was a regular auxiliary pioneer. She took five years off from pioneering later in 2006, we'd become a regular pioneer again, but she had a Bible study with another pioneer. So she left right after the meeting for field service. I was handling out territory assignments to the other sisters when I noticed my daughter who was on my left side was gone. 
I couldn't find her in the kingdom hall and I walked back into the lobby and there was a tall bush and behind the bush, my cousin had her on his lap and his hands were up her dress. At first, I didn't think anything of it, but I knew something was wrong. So I just pulled her away from there and we went out in service and I didn't tell anybody about that first incident. So the following Saturday, we had a special assembly day at our local assembly hall. Because of that, you know, there was no meeting on Sunday morning, but we had a meeting for field service and the elders um, were very lazy when it came to service in my congregation. And they asked if I could take the group out for field service, they could have a Sunday off. And I was super zealous back then. I loved the ministry. And so I said, sure. So Sunday morning, I took the group out. And at this point, my son was only two, so he was not potty trained. So during the meeting for field service, my wife took my son back to change him. And again, I was handling territory assignments out. And after the meeting was over, and I couldn't find my daughter again, and I go back and I can't find her anywhere. I remember knocking on the bathroom door and asking my wife if she's in there. And she says, no. Um, so I went to the elder's room, which the door was locked. Now I'm starting to panic. Now I'm getting really scared. But there were two doors to that elder's room. There was one behind the literature counter. So I walked back there and I, that door was not locked. And my cousin had my daughter again on his lap. And I could tell what he was doing this time. So I yelled at him, screamed at him, pulled her out of there. And... You know, we left. Well, there was another older sister who was out in service in our group that morning. She saw it too, and she could not believe it. So I told my wife, I told this sister, and I talked about it. So Tuesday, I went to the uh, my uncle. I told him what happened, and he apologized. And he said that his son has had problems in the past, and they lock him in his room at night. He's peeped on neighboring windows, uh, women's. He's also hid in the bathroom to watch his mom get undressed. And so, okay, well, I'm glad you're sorry, but I'm going to go to the elders. And as soon as I told him that, his attitude changed 180 because my uncle, all he cared about was position, rank, power, and face. He cared about his reputation more than actually helping people. So he started screaming at me, yelling at me, and I went to the elders and they investigated it, but they broke their own procedural guidelines because they did not call the branch and they just thought it was just two kids having fun or playing. It was no big deal. So nothing happened to my cousin. Now, he was not baptized, but he was an unbaptized publisher. So he was not stopped giving talks. He still was going out in service. Nothing happened to him. Well, then March of 2006, about a little over four months later, I exactly pioneered that month. And my wife had still not become a pioneer. She wouldn't become a regular pioneer until... September of 06, but she was a regular auxiliary for that whole year. And I decided to go out in service till 3 p.m. because I worked third shift back then. So I would go out in service till 3 on Wednesdays and then go home and sleep for a couple hours and go to work at 11 o'clock at night. So my wife drops me off at the house at 3 o'clock and she goes back to the Kingdom Hall to regroup and she comes home within 15 minutes because we only lived about a half mile from the Kingdom Hall and she's furious. And here my daughter went to the bathroom at three o'clock at the kingdom hall and he was in the lobby and my wife was in the cafeteria, the kitchen area of the, the kingdom hall. And he grabbed her again and she comes running in and says, mommy, mommy, he did it again. Now the third time, nobody saw it, but the first time, you know, it was my daughter and myself. The second time it was my daughter, myself and an older sister. So again, I'm furious. I call a fork that night. I call the elders. I call my uncle up. 
And that's the, the maddest I've ever been in my entire life. Then I found out from talking to the elders that they never called the branch. They broke the room procedure. So that Wednesday afternoon, I called the branch and I talked to a, a member from the service department and he was nice and loving and kind. And he says, this never happens and it's no big deal. I mean, it's a big deal. We'll take care of it, but relax, calm down. We got to keep the congregation clean. The elders will, will handle it. So because I called the branch that Wednesday, that following Sunday, I got talked to by the elders for breaking their procedure. They finally launched an investigation committee. They removed him as a publisher. They took all his privileges away. The elders did try to protect my daughter. You know, every time he went to the bathroom, an elder would watch him. We called an elder was a spy. Every meeting, a different elder was assigned to take care of him, to make sure what he was doing. But we were not allowed to tell anybody else in the congregation that would happen. We had to keep it quiet. Uh, at the time, we had like 30 to 40 kids in a congregation under 10. There was about 160 publishers, 18 elders. It was a big congregation. Because I called the branch, like I said, my privileges were taken away. I was not allowed to give talks for about six months, or I was at the time I was doing territories. I wasn't allowed to auxiliary pioneer for six months either, but they didn't delete me as a ministerial servant. So that was my first wake up call. Now, my wife still, she became a regular pioneer. She still was a believer. Um, but at that time, I could tell a shift in her personality. Like she wasn't as trusting to the organization as she was before, because this really shook her to the core. The circuit was here when he came the next time to visit, he had a little shepherding call with us. And again, he was very loving, very warm, but he again said, Oh, this never happens. This is so rare. And after I left and I started doing my activism work, I realized that he was lying because in the next congregation over our neighboring congregation, another young girl was abused by another person at the exact same month, the exact same time as my daughter was. So he knew about that case and he knew about my daughter. So even if he acted nice, acted loving and caring, in actuality, he was lying right to my face. I mean, listening to you um, outline that, that timeline, I think a lot of people who haven't been familiar with this story will be absolutely horrified. One, because as I said, the watch, and this is done, if you look at, if people want to go research the Philadelphia Inquirer article and also the Watchtower in Focus, we go into detail about how the religion wasn't, these elders were not even following the religion's own policy on this issue. And even though the religion's policy is flawed, um, it would have still, you know, they were supposed to contact the branch. There were still steps that were supposed to be taken that were not taken. And it kind of it illustrates, I think, one of the difficulties that a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses have is that when you are told, because some people might be listening to that and thinking, well, why didn't you just instantly go to the police? Or why didn't you, um, you know, why did you expect the elders to handle this? But the thing people need to remember, and obviously as all ex-Jehovah's Witnesses are very aware, when you're a Jehovah's Witness, the organization is God's chosen organization. So anything it tells you to do is essentially instructions from Jehovah. That's how you're supposed to view it. So you're supposed to completely trust this organization, and especially the elders. You're supposed to view the elders as basically being used by Jehovah to accomplish his purposes. So if you, yes, if you go to, if you see something like this, your first response, I mean, my first response as a Jehovah's Witness would be, I must tell the elders and leave it in their hands. And that, that I think, illustrates, I mean, was that the feeling you had very much towards the elders and the organization? It's like, well, this is, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's like, this is God's organization. So I must, I must go to the elders that they'll know what to do. They'll know how to handle this. 
Yeah, because again, in 1988, when I was staying at my grandparents' house in the summertime, uh, my brother and I witnessed my grandfather, my mom's side, uh, molest our cousin. So we went to my parents. I was 11, my brother was nine. And the first thing my parents did was not call the police. The first thing my parents did were to call the elders in my grandparents' congregation. And a judicial committee was formed. So we had my cousin who was a witness, my brother, myself, three witnesses seeing what he was doing to my cousin. And they did not disfellowship my grandfather. And I can remember this clear as day after the elders meeting was over, the judicial committee was over. Cause it was, imagine on in the kingdom hall, the three elders were on the stage. My grandfather was on the left of the kingdom hall. My cousin and her mom were in the middle. My brother, myself, and my mom were on the right. So he was yelling at us. It was going back and forth. It wasn't a judicial committee. It was like an open court session. It was horrible. And afterwards, my mom had a conversation with her, her uh, sister-in-law saying, don't worry, we're going to appeal this decision. We're, we're going to get this fixed. So my parents' mind was, no, don't call the police. Let's call Jehovah. Let's get the elders. The elders will fix it. And at that meeting, I learned that that same man molested my mom when she was a teenager. And back then, that was 1968. There was an elder arrangement. It was a, a congregation servant. And that congregation servant was one of the three elders who was on that judicial committee so, and she, she had a, he had a mini meeting with my mom and me and my brother and said, what, what happened to you 20 years ago? We're not going to hold that against this man today. Cause that's been so long ago. And then I asked, I asked my mom, I'm like, mom, what do you mean? What happened to you? And she wouldn't tell me and she wouldn't tell me. And eventually she said, yeah, he, he touched me when I was a teenager. And I'm like, you let my brother, my sister and me stay at that house. Well, I thought Jehovah would take care of it and fix it. So the training I got from as a kid was that. Jehovah would fix it. The elders will fix it. Now, in my case, the elders did tell me more than once that I had every right to call the police, but they kept saying, but think of Jehovah's name. Do you want to bring reproach upon Jehovah's name or the congregation? So just think of that about that before your call. Now, we can't stop you from calling. You can call, but there might be consequences of you calling. And it was like a thinly vague threat that if I would have called the police, maybe I would have been deleted as an, as an ministerial servant. So my wife and I didn't call. Mm. And later on, because my uncle and my cousin and my, and my aunt, they stayed in that congregation for a number of years until I became appointed an elder. As soon as I became an elder, they, they left. They did not want me in that car, be in the same congregation. Yeah. And my coordinator took my wife and I aside one day. This is maybe 2009, 2008, three or four years after it happened. I don't know the exact date. And he goes, I need to talk to you too. It was after a Sunday meeting. And he broke every procedure possible because he was with another elder. It was just the coordinator and him. He says, you're causing divisions in the congregation. I'm like, how are we doing that? Well, you're not nice to your uncle. You're not talking to your uncle. Everybody can see clearly as day that you, when you see your uncle, you sit on the other side of the kingdom hall. And I'm like, look, I don't want nothing to do with my uncle. He says, you have to be nice to him. You have to go out of your way to show love to him. So if you don't change your ways now, your wife can't pioneer and you're, we're going to take you off the list as, an, as a ministerial servant. So that was the attitude my coordinator got to me that I was supposed to show love and compassion that even though the watchtower would have articles saying, choose your associates wisely in the congregation. Not every Jehovah's witness is good association. They would actually tell us that, but in their mind, that even though my daughter was the victim, that I had to be the better man. I had to show love and compassion 
and go out of my way to be nice to my uncle because I followed every procedure that they told me to. The only thing I did wrong was call the branch. I never discussed it with anybody in the congregation. I never discussed it with my parents, my sister, my brother. I didn't tell anybody else, just my family. Now my uncle told other people. So my aunts and uncles would come to me and act like what's going on here. And of course I had to say something, but I was treated as a horrible person for bringing this, this story up to begin with. And I know that um, reading through your life, reading through the story you put on Reddit, um, so clearly you've gone through all of this, this appalling experience, but you were still very much, would you say, a believing Jehovah's Witness at this point? You were still, you, you, you were still believed in the faith, even though you would had all this, these experiences inside it. Would that be, would that be fair to say? A hundred percent. I love the organization. I love uh, service. I love meetings. I loved, you know, just, it was everything about it. I love the culture, the attitudes, the, I mean, now I realize it was all fake. It was all a thin veneer, but at that time I lived, breathed and ate Jehovah's Witnesses, the culture that I read every magazine cover to cover. I went out of my way to help at the kingdom hall, whatever I could, um, even though, and that's what really makes me upset is all these things happened, you know, with my mother, my cousin, my daughter. And then when I became an elder, I learned of other abuse in the same congregation. Those things are not the, what shocked me out of the organization. And I wish they would have. I wish it, my daughter's abuse, we would have left in 2005 and never went back. But it was something so trivial that actually woke me up that I wish I could go back and hit a reset button and do it all over again. And I've told my daughter, I feel like I failed you keeping you in that kingdom hall. You know, at the time, she was only four when the abuse happened. And she, she's not upset or mad at me because she knew, knows that I was brainwashed just like she was, my mom was, uh, her mom was, my wife was. And I think that that kind of illustrates the, the, the way that the thing that wakes people up is not always the thing you'll, you'll be expecting because, and I'm sure you're not alone in having gone through awful experiences like this, but been convinced that this is, I mean, when we know you can talk to many ex-Jehovah's Witnesses who've been through similar situations and that isn't always the thing that wakes them up because they still think, well, this is God's pure organization. It's just that there are some people in this organization who are doing terrible things. And that's exactly. not to cast it away. And interestingly, I mean, looking in your life story on Reddit, it was actually a Bible study that your wife was having with um, a, a Bible study. And the Bible study started doing their own research and then started... Um, she actually became a publisher, but kept researching and then started showing your wife things like the, the infamous UN scandal, the, the Melno Park scandal, the, the 607 BCE date not going wrong, you know, not being correct, the Royal Commission. And that started to wake your wife up. And then uh, I believe she came to you and started to try and wake you up. And that began the process of you gradually waking up. And I think you put in your life story, and correct me if this is wrong, one of the tipping points for you was when you got the commander, the, the Watchtower Society sent out a command to sort of throw away a bunch of old literature that was considered old light. Uh, and you were sat in this meeting because you didn't, you didn't think that was, um, you, you, were the, you were, took it to the literature servant and you were aware this was supposed to be destroyed, but you never, it, never, it never happened. And the elders yeah. got very furious with you for not doing your job. And then you were, you, I think you say in your, um, in your account on Reddit, you wish you'd film this because you saw this bunch of old kind of old elders grabbing this huge trash can and started throwing all the Jehovah's Witness publications yeah. in trash. Um, uh, to you, it was just this moment you, you realized they were all brainwashed and they would literally do whatever the Watchtower told them to do. And that was one of the moments that kind of 
really made things come into, into focus for you. Is that correct? Yeah. So again, I was baptized in 1989. So that was before the knowledge book, before the Bible teach books. So the book that I studied with was the Live Forever book. And I loved that book. I loved it. And in the meantime, so I was in the red line congregation from 1999 till 2013. We had 18 elders and my wife wanted to do more. So she's like, let's go, let's move to another congregation it needs help. So in the summer of 2013, the circuit overseer came and I said, is there any congregations that need help? And he goes, yes, the prospect congregation only has four elders. One had committed suicide just a few weeks before that. And the other one had died of cancer. So I told my wife, do you want to go to prospect? The circuit overseer says they need help. And she's like, sure, let's go. And the neat thing was that my dad was an elder and red from 1978 to 1982. And the circuit overseer asked my dad to go from red line to prospect in 82. So for five years as a kid, you know, I was in prospect congregation the time I was five to 10. So now here I'm going to be, uh, I would have been like 36, I guess, 37, mm-hmm. um, around there. And I was going to go to prospect as an elder to help that congregation. It's like history repeat itself. This is Jehovah's telling me what to do. <laughs> so we went there in September of, of 2013. And within two weeks, September 15th, it may be the service service here. Because again, I was always out in service. I loved the ministry. So I was having trouble accessing the website for some reason. There was some kind of glitch in the matrix. And um, the coordinator actually got the request for the Bible study and gave it to my wife. Because he gave it to my wife because she was a new pioneer, didn't have any calls, and she started to study. So... That's the first thing that woke my wife up. But again, we fought and argued for months about doctrine because I was still a believer. So August of 2015, um, the way the, again, they could have changed in the last three years. I don't know if they have changed it, but when I was an elder, you had an inbox that the circuit overseer, an elder could send you the messages or you get a direct message from the, from the branch. So some messages would be for all elders. Some messages would just be for the coordinators. Some would be for the secretaries. And once in a while, just a service overseer would get a message. And August 2015, I got a message in my inbox saying, throw all these old books away. Now they were the knowledge book, the live forever book, the reasoning book, the old organized book. This congregation in in, uh, York, Pennsylvania was an old congregation. So we had lots of books for public to to place. We had the the commentary, the letter of James from the seventies. We would have, you know, um, family life happiness, the old books, and the neat thing I liked about it is because I would see new people come to the meeting and somebody would take them back to the counter and show them these old publications and say, oh, look at these old books. If you ever want to read it, like it was something to be treasured and to look prized. Now, there is some confusion. Some people think they're talking about the, the library. This is not the actual library. This was the actually all the books to place in the literature cabinet. So they, the Watchtower didn't care about the library because hardly anybody ever goes in there and looks at that. So we were told to throw these books away. And I gave it to my literature servant and he forgot about it. He never did it. And, you know, I forgot about it too. So February of 2016, I put the inventory, all the books we have up on the website again. And within less than a week, I got a letter in my inbox. And it wasn't just my, me, it was every elder got it. So the Watchtower really wanted these books gone <laughs> like then. So imagine being an elder and being not yelled at, but like disappointed, you know, saying, how could you not do this? So during that elders meeting, my last meeting I was at, I was like, what is going on here? These people are just, they'll do anything. And 
again, these, I was like, I was 38 during this elders meeting and I was the youngest elder by 30 years. Maybe I think the next youngest was like 64 or something. They were in the sixties to eighties and they had seen more changes than I had because they'd been in the organization longer than I had. They had probably studied and let God be true or the truth book. And they were gone. Those books were gone. So, but they had no problem in throwing these publications away. And I wish I would have kept that letter. I threw it away. I wish I would have gone back and done a lot of other things differently when I woke up. But yeah, so I went home that Tuesday night and I told the wife and I said, I'm done. I'm you're, mm-hmm. I, you're hundred percent right. I was wrong. I'm sorry. We fought for like six months because my wife had gone off the pioneer list in November of 2015. And her last meeting was Thanksgiving night of 2015. So after the meeting, she's like, I'm not going back. And we fought. And in the summer of 2015, my wife, who was a nurse, was attacked by a resident. And her arm got broken because a resident knocked her down and pushed her arm behind her back. So for three months, my wife couldn't really drive anywhere because her arm was in, like all wrapped up and she had a lot of pain. And she was on the medical, you know, for service. And they, they oh, yeah, just do what you can until you get better. Well, then she started having panic attacks and so I was telling all the elders in the congregation, oh, my wife's having panic attacks. Well, I thought it was due to related to the injury, the attack in June of 2015. Well, no, the panic attacks was from the Kingdom Hall because those three months, my wife couldn't go out in service, couldn't go to meetings. That's when she really did the deep dive into whether this was the truth or not. And so I was covering for her because remember, I technically should not have been an elder because for the past three months, my wife hadn't been to one meeting or been out in service once but she was putting those token like hour hours in. So she wouldn't be a regular. Mm. And so I was covering for her. So she hadn't been to the meeting in a couple months. And I said, well, I'm done. And we never went back. We, I never went back to that kingdom hall from the night. I, my last meeting was an elders meeting after the Tuesday night meeting. And I have never stepped foot in a kingdom hall since then. <laughs> so, I mean, I, w- I want to come back actually uh, a bit later and ask you about um, that kind of severance of ties. And obviously the fact that you are, you know, you're being shunned by family members and all these other things and how you cope with that. Um, I think what, what I'd like to do quickly is just establish the current chain of events because obviously you, you, your family leaves the Jehovah's Witnesses and a, the police become involved. You, there's a police report filed about the abuse that, um, that this, this man has been carrying out. Now, I think when you were on Watchtower in Focus, the state of events was that the police were hunting this guy down but that he was on the run. Since that happened, my understanding is that this person has been apprehended by the authorities and is currently standing trial. So what's the, what's the current state with this, this particular offender? And how have the local congregation or the Watchtower reacted to this, this trial? So the coordinator who gave me so much trouble after the abuse from 2006. Now, he was not the, I think the coordinator arrangement came in in 07. So he was not the coordinator when the abuse happened. He became, he wasn't on the elder body, but he became the coordinator a few years after the abuse. And he's the one who gave me the hard time because he liked my uncle. Hmm. Well, in 2011 or 12, after I became an elder, that coordinator got deleted as an elder for uh, looking at pornography. So unrelated story, but whatever. So we had a new coordinator appointed in that meantime. And he was really nice to me. He liked me in red line. So, but he hated my cousin. He hated him with a passion. So my uncle and my cousin moved to Delaware with his daughter and his wife after, right after I got appointed an elder and my cousin, 
kisses and touched another girl in the Delaware congregation. So now I don't know how bad it was. I don't know who it was because all I know, we had an emergency elders meeting like in 2012 and that new coordinator said he did it again. We need to talk to the branch and they can't, they won't give you the details because I wasn't on the committee, but they have to tell the whole body what's going on. So, so this coordinator, the new coordinator really could not stand my uncle, could not stand my cousin. And I found out when that article ran in April of 2018 in the Philadelphia Inquirer, he saw that article. Okay. And the reason why I know that he's, he actually called the police because he knew where my, my cousin was living. Cause now my cousin is an adult man in Delaware and he knew where he was living. He's the one who called the police and gave the tip. So an actual elder called the police, Mm. but 12, 13 years after the actual accident incident happened, not accident, excuse me. So Mm. he's the one who called the police. So the Delaware police in May of 2015 arrested him, put him in jail for three days. Monday morning, he made bail. And then two weeks later, he had a peer in York County, Pennsylvania, and he uh, entered into a plea agreement. So um, I don't know all the details of the plea. Basically, he's going to be on probation. He has to go to man- mandatory um, s- sexual therapy counseling or sexual predator counseling. There's some other stipulations he has to do under this plea agreement. If he does not fulfill all these details, he can be then bumped up to a higher charge, mm-hmm. and then he probably will get jail time. So on December 4th of 2018 is when his hearing is to mm-hmm. whether he will actually accept the plea deal. So next Tuesday, um, this coming Tuesday, we'll actually have the court case. So right. basically, he probably won't get any more jail time because it is an old case. It wasn't as bad as it could have been. I'm not trying to minimize the abuse, but it in their mind, I wish I would have went to the police in 2005 or 2006. Probably back then, it would have been a higher penalty than it is now because it's such a long uh, mm. court case. So that's where it's at now. So because of the article, because of publicity, even though it's caused more problems in my wife's family because of that, if we never would have talked to the reporters, if we never would have done anything about it, that person never would have been arrested. Yeah. And they're charges never would have been filed because the police were not actively looking for him. Okay. So that, and that's interesting to note is that, again, this illustrates the difference between the Watchtower approach and the authorities is the Watchtower is basically powerless to do anything uh, about an offender except really read scriptures at them and then try and maybe keep an eye on them if they can, which they, you know, demonstrably, un- the elders are not capable of doing that. Whereas once the authorities are aware, they can they literally can keep an eye on this person. They can mandate their behavior. And if this person violates any of the terms of that behavior, well, there's a jail cell waiting for them. Exactly. So, so that in itself, I mean, again, we could there are, that we could go into more detail about the actual technicalities, but I think that in itself highlights the importance of these incidents going before the, the authorities as soon as possible. And, and as you said, Watchtower's preference is to keep it in-house, but Watchtower really can't do anything. I mean, they're not they're not law enforcement. They have no power of detention. They can't take they can't take children out of a if the if the abuser is a parent, Watchtower can't take children out of a home. If the abuser is in the congregation, all they can really do is say, "We'll try and keep an eye on him when he goes to the toilets and try and keep kids away from him." But it's it's a very different thing to the authorities who can you know put people in jail or put conditions on them and say, "If you break any of these conditions, there's a you know there's a jail cell waiting for you." 
Yeah. So if a congregation with 18 elders cannot keep their, their kids safe, how can the average congregation, which has four, six, seven elders, keep their kids safe? So it's impossible. They cannot, mm-hmm. they cannot do it. So, so what I want to ask you is, because obviously we know that um, you, you've been through this experience as a family and you've been obviously not only having to deal with leaving the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, which I want to get onto a bit later, but also you've had that direct experience of having to cope with, um, your, your daughter's had the experience of having to deal with being an abuse survivor and you as a family have got the experience of supporting an abuse survivor and going through this, this which has been traumatic for yourself of realizing what's happened, wondering what to do. So how have you been able to process this as a family? What did you find useful and helpful to help you kind of move forward and heal? Well, it, I would like to go back to February of 2016 for a moment. So with the holidays. So the first Sunday after I left, so that following Sunday, my wife's like, let's go do something fun. Let's just get out of here. It's, uh, all right. Because now we can. We don't have to do anything on a Sunday meeting. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, what do you want to do? And she's like, let's go to Annapolis, Maryland. And that's the Naval Academy headquarters for the United States uh, Naval Navy. And she's let's go there because it's right on the ocean in Maryland. Beautiful town. You can tour the academy. And I'm like, okay. So we took our kids. We went down there Sunday morning. And so this is the Sunday after that first Tuesday meeting. Mm. and we're just walking through the beautiful town. It's a beautiful, nice, warm February day. We got food. We got some coffee, and we toured the academy. So my wife and I were just talking, like, what do we do next? What's the next thing? Because, you know, I'm 38. Mm. My, wife's, my wife's 40. We have never celebrated a birthday. We have never celebrated any holidays. We don't know. I was asking her questions. What about the kids in dating? How are they going to date? Because in my mind you can only date Jehovah's Witnesses. So how are they going to find a, a good spouse? I, I was like lost. So we're having this discussion and then she brings up holidays. And now she's like, well, we can, we can celebrate holidays. I'm like, no, we can't. Because in my mind, I am still, even though I know Jehovah's Witnesses mm. are all made up, even though I know that everything I was told was a lie, mentally, I was not ready to, to talk about Christmas. So we actually got into a little fight in Annapolis, Maryland, <laughs> about whether to celebrate Christmas or not. <laughs> and, and my wife clearly told me, she's like, look, you're not my spiritual head anymore. You are not my boss. We are a team. We got to do things together. And even though I was never a domineering husband, even though I was never a bossy person, she was 100% right. I am no better than she is. I am not in charge of her. And I said, let's figure it out. Let's do this. So it's been you know over two and a half years. We're still figuring it out day by day. But mm-hmm. see, the beautiful thing about my wife's family is only her parents are, el- are witnesses. Her dad's an elder. Her mom pioneered for a number of years. And her brother's a witness. All my wife's aunts and uncles, all of her cousins never became Jehovah's Witnesses. She, she had this awesome little like backup plan. Not a backup plan, but like an a, mm-hmm. a escape pod, like a help there. So much support. Yeah. So she told me at that time, I want to get to know my family because she was 40 years old and she didn't really know her cousins because she'd only seen maybe every couple of years. You know, she didn't know her aunts and uncles and her mm. aunts and uncles are in her sixties now and she doesn't really know them. So I said, I have no problem with that. Let's get to know them. Let's become family with them because now I'm going to have a family, even though I lost my mom and mm. dad, my brother, my sister, all my cousins. Cause I had, on my, my dad's side, I had 14 cousins who were all Jehovah's Witnesses. Two of my cousins were pioneers. Actually, three of them, three of my uh, cousins were pioneers at that time. I don't know if they still are. My other cousin, he's an elder. You know, my sister's 
was at Brooklyn Bethel and Wallkill for 20 plus years. Uh, my brother-in-law is an elder. As far as I know, he still is. My dad was an elder. All my uncles were elders. So again, I was losing. I knew, even though we hadn't told anybody then, we knew we were going to lose all that. We knew they were all going to be wiped off. But we had this other way to do it. So and my wife and I, so she's, she, she always wanted to go to college. And she says, I got plans. I said, okay, because I'm lost. She, she was mentally... She was mentally ahead of me at that time. So she's really she on already, point. It sounds like she's yes. kind of like, you, you, you're kind of like, oh my God, what do we do? And she's like, don't worry, I have a plan. Exactly. So she's like, I want to go back to college. I said, okay. Now, my wife went to school once, one year as an, to become an LPN or a licensed practical nurse. And mm. she wanted always wanted to become a registered nurse. She, even some of the elders gave her a hard time for going to school for that one year to become a nurse. And I, I have no problem with that. Let's figure it out. Let's do it. And then she's like, I want to move. I want to get out of this house. I want to get out of this, this congregation area. Because it meant, remember, we were a half mile from the Kingdom Hall. To get to our Kingdom Hall, you had to drive past our house. Okay. So everybody... You know, she wanted out of there. We had lived in a house for 15 years. So I said, okay. So at Annapolis, Maryland, that Sunday morning, she drew up like a two-year plan, what she wanted to do. And I'm like, I'm like a, a, a lifeboat floating in the ocean. I'm just letting the waves take me where it's going. And she, she has a sail, a rudder, and a power outboard motor. And she's like, we're going this way. That's awesome. And so I followed her path, and that's what I've been doing the past two and a half years. So that's, I was going to say that's really interesting. Just I don't mean to interrupt, but just to break that down. So what you've got there is the importance of reestablishing community. Actually, so this is something we discussed. Actually, Alice Cheshire and myself on the mm-hmm. previous yes. episode is the the subjective the, the keys to establishing subjective happiness. The things that people who who consider themselves happy tend to tend to have in common, and one of them is community. And as you left the Jehovah's Witnesses, you you lose most of your community. As you were saying, you have all these JW friends and family that you're not going to see anymore. But as a family, you look, well, who do we, who do we know? Who, you know, like you say, your wife's family that are not JWs. Well, that's an opportunity now to build those relationships as a replacement. And also another commonality I noticed was like your wife was like, no, I have a plan. I have like, I want to go back and go back into education, go back to college. As you say, because when you leave the JWs, you feel yourself drifting about what do I do now? And having a goal like that, well, I'm going to go back into college or maybe I'm going to do, do this particular career I always wanted to, or I'm going to follow this hobby or there's, there's something I'm going to do with my life. Having that, that goal you can work towards is an, apparently it's, it's purpose. It's another major factor in people who report subjective happiness. They say, yeah, things are going quite well. It tends to be they have a purpose in life. And when we're Jehovah's Witnesses, our purpose is being a JW. And when that gets taken away from us, as you say, we can kind of feel like we're in free, free fall. What do we do now? And finding that purpose. So it sounds like your, your wife was very much, no, this is, this is what I want to do now. I want to go get this. And it gave her that, that sense of purpose to kind of grasp onto. Would that, would that be like a fair summation of, of what you've just described? 100%. It was great. So the following holiday was Easter, which is like a month or two after this conversation. And she told me, I want to be at my family's house for Easter for the first time. She says, I want to paint eggs and I want to give uh, chocolate out to my family. And I'm like, okay, we'll do that. So that first holiday with her family was very strange. It was like I was in somebody else's body. So I told her family and my wife and my kids, I said, I don't want to do anything. I'll be here, but I don't want to participate, but I'll I'll observe. I'm just an observer here. Mm. And Later that day, I had a talk with her, her, her uncles and aunts and her cousins, and I apologized to them right then and there. Look, I said, I am sorry. I said, I was indoctrinated. 
I thought I was doing was right. I'm sorry that I kept your cousin, your niece away from you. I was wrong. I'm sorry I wasn't here for Thanksgivings or Christmases. I'm sorry I wasn't here for birthdays or graduations. But Mm -hmm. I told her family that I would love to be here, part of your family, if it's okay with you. And they all were like crying and hugging us and, oh, don't worry about it. It's okay. But I felt like the jerk, you know what I mean? Because I thought her, her, my wife's father was very unique because, again, he had been an elder as long as I've known him. And he was very serious about the truth, but he, every witness has their own little quirks they allow to happen. Like some people, some witnesses will watch mature movies or play mature games. Other witnesses will do weird things. Well, his thing was Thanksgiving. He had no problem with Thanksgiving. So it was, it was really weird how he would go to Thanksgiving with his sister and brother and his uh, sister-in-law and brother-in-law and his nieces and nephews. But I went and he would yell at me, you're wrong, you're wrong. We can't do Thanksgiving. Oh, it's okay. It's just a meal. It's no big deal. So, but then the funny thing was as soon as we left and as soon as we started doing Thanksgiving and the other holidays, he, they disappeared. My mother-in-law and my father-in-law would never, and they have not been to any family gathering in the last couple of years because of that. So it's just, it's just really, because since I'm there celebrating Thanksgiving now, he, I guess he can't go there. I don't know. That's that's so strange. I know what you mean. I I um because I was one of those JWs who was kind of there were some things I would kind of break the laws on, like what movies I was supposed to watch. But it seems like in some areas you can get away with some things that you can't in others, depending on where you live and in which congregations you are. There's almost like if you're lucky, you get a bit of leeway that other people don't. So it's it's interesting because again, it's like you sort of describing how you got invited to this, this celebration and you were like deeply uncomfortable. You, from the way you described it, you were clearly deeply uncomfortable, but you went anyway. And I think that's another thing is when we leave the Jehovah's Witnesses, I don't know how you feel about this. I think the temptation is to stay in your comfort zone of like, you know, I, I, I don't, these, you know, Christmas makes me uncomfortable. The thought of going to a worldly thing makes me uncomfortable. The thought of doing anything that the Jehovah's Witnesses forbade me still kind of makes me feel uncomfortable. And personal growth really only happens when you make yourself feel uncomfortable. You have to get out of your comfort zone in order to have new experience and in order to grow as a person. And I think it's it's something as, as, as ex-witnesses, something I think, I don't know how you feel about this, but the sooner we realize that if we really want to grow as a person and become the person we were always really supposed to be, we're going to have to step outside of that comfort zone. And then clearly for you, doing that enabled you to get to that first Thanksgiving, even though you were clearly like, look, I'm not going to take part, I'm just going to be here. But it seems to have like helped you kind of like take that next step into getting outside your comfort zone and, and having that wonderful moment with your, your non-JW family where they were clearly embracing you all with open arms. That sounds like a very, very much a kind of an example of why it's a good idea to push your comfort zone with those kind of things. Yeah, 100% correct. I mean, we had had a Halloween party for the first time. For the first time as like 41 or 40, I don't know how it was then, I invited people over from work. I've never invited people over from work. I've never been over people from work's house in my entire life. Um, I've been at this job for 20 years now, so I know a lot of the people. And it was kind of interesting. So the the first little forays into the world that I did, which was actually fun, was... You know, I, back then I work second shift now, but back then I was working third shift. So a lot of the guys would go to the bar and get breakfast mm-hmm. after work and then get a drink or two. And they would do it. They would invite me for years and I would turn them down. Can't do that. Can't do that. Can't do that. So finally, one, one, I think it was a Tuesday morning or a Monday morning. I'm like, hey, you guys going out for breakfast? They're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Do you mind if I come? They're like, sure, sure, sure. So then, you know, went out for breakfast, got some eggs and toast and then 
at seven o'clock when the bar opened up, we got a, a beer and then I sat in a bar for like a couple hours and with three or four guys from work and we just talked and had fun. And there were people smoking there and there were <laughs> bad language, but nothing, nothing bad happened. It was like, no people got arrested. There was no fights. There was no, cause we, I was always told that bad things will always happen at bars yeah. and my world eyes were opened up. So then for the next few months, at least once a week, I'd go out with the guys after work. And then that, because of that, I was able to comfortable enough to invite those people over to my house because the time I was a kid, I was always told that, you know, if you invite worldly people at your house, you know, sex will happen or rape or drug use or something bad is going to happen. So you can't do it. So that I had to do little baby steps. I had to make little forays into the world a little bit at a time. I can remember I was a pretty good Jehovah's witness. I wasn't perfect, but I was pretty good. So I really never watched too many R rated movies or Peggy 18 over there or 18 restricted Mm -hmm. in, in England. And I remember that that the few nights later, I said, I, I'm going to watch Deadpool. And so that was like the first really R-rated movie. <laughs> I That's a good choice. I love that yeah. film. That's a good choice. But the first one. So then I showed it to my wife and then she was a little nervous, but we watched together. We had fun. And now we make it a point to like once or twice a month to go out and see an R-rated movie just because it's R-rated. So, yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny because I remember on that point of like, you're, you're told that all these horrible things will happen if you go to like a worldly party or go to a bar. My first Halloween when I was out of the JWs, um, I went to a, I ended up basically dressed as a, a kind of a cross between a demon and a vampire in this huge Halloween party. And there was at the back of my mind, I was like, oh my goodness, these people are smoking. Oh my goodness, these people are drinking. Oh my goodness, that person's wearing something very scanty clad and there was a little voice in my head that was expecting like any minute now you know the drugs and the police and the shame is all going to come but what actually happened was everyone had a really good time it was fun i got a little bit drunk Um, i woke up in the morning with a little bit of a hangover it was incredibly good natured nothing bad happened at all and it was an example for me of like it's surprising how that jw conditioning can linger in your head even when when you think you've been out for a while it still kind of rears its ugly head sometimes and just being aware that it's going to do that allows you to kind of say it's okay I'm panicking because there's a little bit of my brain that's still in a cult and that's fine. I'm just going to tell that part of my brain to shut up and I'm going to, I'm going to just proceed as, as the normal me would. And I found that, do do you find anything? I was going to ask you, do you still have any aspects of the JW conditioning that's still in your brain that, that rears up from time to time that you have to, you, you sort of catch yourself thinking, Oh no, that's the old JW me speaking. I've got to shut that up. Yeah, from time to time, I, I, it's still presence, still there. One, one of the things is like my father is a super hard worker, and he's one of those people that could never relax. He had to always be doing something because he thought if he wasn't working, he was wasting time. Mm-hmm. So we, we drove to Florida and to Disney World as a kid, and he did not like having that whole week off of work. So he decided to buy an aftermarket cruise control and put it on his car instead of enjoying the beach, enjoying Disney World, enjoying the sun at Florida. Um, that's kind of my the person my dad was. So he was never happy. So when he retired at 62, he retired early. He started doing the prison witnessing, you know, like three or four days a week. Mm. Um, so I, I got, I got a lot of that. Uh, one of the bad movie or play a video game, I still feel like I should be doing something like I can't, sometimes it's hard to enjoy just the, the mundane moments of life. Hmm. You know, I feel bad if I, my wife and I go for a hike. Well, I should have helped somebody or even if 
it's not a JW thing. You have that training that it's whatever you do is never good enough. It's yeah. you always can do more for the organization, more for religion. So that creeps up into my into my personal life even today, even two and a half plus years later, that I feel like I should be doing more for helping other witnesses get out. I'm never doing enough. And I know, hey, I'm only one person, it's one life. I can enjoy life, I can have mm. fun. And I can still help other people at the same time and don't feel bad for going out to the movies and dinner with my wife. Don't feel bad for playing a video game. Don't feel bad for sleeping in till 10 o'clock in the morning. I do work second shift, but mm. I still, if I don't, if I sleep in like today, I didn't get up on time. I thought, and I was upset with myself. Like I, that, that's the biggest thing right now. I think I've gotten over most of the hangups with Jehovah's Witnesses, but that's probably the, my one I'll maybe never get over. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to ask you as well, um, and again, this this might be this might be a question to which you're like, um, I'm not sure what the answer is, but this is what we're trying to do. Um, is you obviously your parents, you've you've had a daughter who's been through this experience. What ways have you find useful to kind of like help her and support her going forward? Because obviously there'll be a lot of XJW parents who are maybe in your situation. They've got a daughter who's been subjected to this this type of behavior and abuse um and they've they've now left the jehovah's witnesses i mean how have you what have you found useful in helping to, your daughter to kind of move forward and, and progress and support her so my kids homeschool because my wife didn't want them in public school away from worldly influences so when i woke up i'm like my daughter was 14 i'm like hey let's my son was like 12 or 13 and let's uh, let's go back to public school well I thought I graduated from public school. I had no problem with it, but I wasn't thinking about from their perspective here. They just left a cult. Mm. They just lost all their friends. They just lost their family to them. That was too much of a big move. Mm. And they said, no. And I'm like, yes, 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 yes. yes." They're like, no, we can't do it. We, we, my daughter wasn't emotionally ready because my daughter, Mm. even to this day has problems trusting new people because of that abuse when she was four years old. And she's told me that and she's told other people, but I was pushing and they were pushing back. So then my wife and I, we found a compromise. We found a charter school that allows you to do homeschooling, but there's a center like 10 minutes from the house so they can check in, check out. So now it's the best of both worlds. They can, I can drop them off there. They can associate for three hours, six hours, you know, three days a week, four days a week, one day a week, whatever they want to do. So they can do their school there where the teachers are or they can do it from home. So that's what we compromised. But that, I thought I knew it was best for my daughter, but I was wrong. She knew it was best for her at that time. Now she's going to graduate in, uh, in, the, in the spring and she loves the center that when she goes to. She, she and my son go about two to three days a week unless they, they can't get up and they oversleep then they just stay home and do their school. And mm-hmm. my, my son and her have made lots of great friends, lifelong friends, I think, because of that, because of going to the center. So she's got to expand her friendship She's got to grow as a person because of that. And then the second thing, my wife really was helpful. Like you need to go to a therapy and she was so hesitant at first. So she didn't want to go to a therapist for years. So again, when I was a Jehovah's Witness, I never took her to therapy because I thought like, just pray to Jehovah, Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. would fix everything. So downtown Harrisburg, there was um, a group center for teenagers who had been abused or whatever. So it's a drop in, drop out thing. You don't have to go every Wednesday. It's free. You know, I don't know if the state or a nonprofit runs it. So for a couple of years, we were, um, for 2016, 2017, every Wednesday, we were dropping her off there for a couple hours. And she was 
mingling and talking to, uh, and again, this wasn't my yeah. idea. This wasn't my wife's, well, wasn't my daughter's idea. It was my wife's idea, excuse me. And mm-hmm. my, my daughter got lots of friends from this group therapy that she would go to. And then finally, a little less than a year ago, she said it's okay to go to therapy. And she goes every two weeks now to talk to um, an actual, a licensed somebody who went to school, who has education, who has mm-hmm. training and how to deal with people who have been victims of sexual abuse. And in fact, right now, my wife had just taken her this morning. So she's there currently as we are recording this, this, uh, this audio right here. That's, that's brilliant. I mean, that's, that's interesting because I think it illustrates two useful things because obviously, I mean, I, I am no psychologist, but from what I understand, many victims of, of sexual abuse feel like control was taken from them. And so they will they have this thing where they're expecting, you know, if you, if, if you try and take control away from them again, they're very resistant to it. And so you have that situation where obviously you want what's best for your daughter and you can see she needs to start building relationships and, and interacting with other children. And she's really hesitant of being thrown back into it. But the nice thing there, I think, is it's, it's the communication that was there. Your wife and your daughter could have that discussion and be like, okay, what, what's the actual goal here? Is the actual goal to get her into a public school for its own sake or is the goal really to sort of continue her education in a way that gets her more social interaction with kids her age and you were able to find that compromise or like you say here's a way we can do best of both worlds because obviously you you could say to her that we want what's best for you just do as we say and then she would come back but I don't feel comfortable with that but it sounds like by having that discussion by having that open communication and kind of working together as it on it as a family with looking for compromise, you guys have been able to find, like you say, the best of both worlds is a place where she can, she can be homeschooled when she wants to, when she wants to withdraw from it. But when she chooses to, and wants to have that association, then it's there for her. And it seems like it was a similar thing with therapy whereby, I mean, and this is one thing we always say on the forward cast, there's no substitute for professional therapy. Um, if you're in this kind of situation and therapy is available to you, there's really no substitute. But again, you kind of allowed her to find her way into it at her own pace. You basically worked with your daughter and had that open communication with her in order to kind of find the way forward in a way that she was comfortable with that helped her to get to the place where you you kind of wanted her to be as a person where she had more social interaction she was able to get therapy would that be a fair summation of of that yeah so i really would say that professional therapy was the key that my wife and i could not solve my daughter's issues by ourselves we didn't have the training we were not mentally capable of doing it because this reminds me of a story when i was an elder so we had a we had a sister come to us for help. Now, I was on four judicial committees, so I reinstated two people and I disfellowshiped two people mm-hmm. on those committees. But I also did some shepherding calls, some counseling, and the sister had an unbelieving husband, and he was making her, her do like sexual acts that, you know, Watchtower frowns upon. And she was asking, what should I, we do? And we would show scriptures and, and, you know, we tried to encourage her and be submissive, but yet you can't break the laws. And she kept saying, well, what should, should I leave my husband? And, you know, how can I stop this? How can, but we were not there. We were not licensed. We were not trained. All we had was a a book. They were trying to pull scriptures out to help people. You know, I'm a, I run a printing press. I'm a pressman. I'm not qualified to give real counsel to help people with marriages or people who to survive abuse cases or people Mm -hmm. 
who have domestic violence in, in their in their lives. I can't fix those. I don't have the training or the skills to do that. I'm I'm nobody. But yet here as an elder, I was giving her counsel and how to live her life when I barely knew what I was doing at that time too. Too. So that's why I really think that my daughter really has grown so much and has gotten so much better because of the actual every two weeks the professional therapy that she's gotten she's received yeah and that's um and i think and i as i know it's not always available for some people where they live there may be a financial issues or there may not be any therapists available but really if professional therapy is available then it's it's such a vital part of the healing process going forward Something else I wanted to ask you about, something that struck me as well, is you mentioned in your life story that you've left the Jehovah's Witnesses, you've lost 30 pounds and dropped your cholesterol quite dramatically. Has that been a result of you feeling mentally in a bit of a better place, or has that been just kind of a byproduct of of leaving the JWs? Because one of the things, again, that Alice Cheshire and I were talking about in the previous episode is physical health is linked to your mental health and your emotional well-being. So usually the the physically healthier you are, the better people tend to feel. Mm -hmm. Has that been your experience? Yeah. So again, I was a good Jehovah's Witness. I I didn't have sex or wedding night. I never did drugs, never smoked, never drank as a kid. You know, I can remember I was pioneering. I, after service was over, I drove to the state store to buy beer for the first time at 21. And I asked the, the, the lady, I said, where do you keep your beer? And she's like, this is the state store. We only sell wine and and booze here. Like I didn't know in Pennsylvania, we have weird liquor laws. State stores can only sell wine and hard liquor beer distributors can only sell beer. It's very, but I didn't even know that because I was so naive. So I never had an issue with drinking or anything else. Um, I had never gotten really in trouble as a teenager, but my big, big problem, my big weakness was food. I would always overeat and I always had a trouble with my weight. Like if there was a six pack of beer and a pack of chocolate bar as a teenager, I'd go for the chocolate, not the beer. So I always struggled with my weight. I was about 220 pounds when we got married at 20 and I'm, I'm only five, seven, I'm not tall. And my weight would go up and down and I would get serious about it. And a couple of times I hit 275. And so when we left in February of, of 2016, I was about 265. I wasn't at the heaviest I've ever been, but I was getting back up there again. And I always would think, well, in the paradise, I get perfect health. Who cares about my health now? So April of 2016, at work, they had a free blood assessment health screening. I signed up for it, took it. I realized my cholesterol was over 400, and I was borderline diabetic, and I was in not good health at all. So I told the wife, I said, look, I got time now. I don't have service. I don't have meetings. I don't have preparing for talks. I need, to, I need to fix this now. So the next week I joined a gym. I started eating better. It's actually, I'm down, I'm down 50 pounds now. I'm, I'm, I weigh 215. Wow. So I've lost 50 pounds in the last two and a half years. I did gain about a pound since uh, Thanksgiving, but I'm, I'm, two, <laughs> I'm 216 this morning, but last week I was 215. So I've lost 50 pounds. My cholesterol is 200 now. I'm no longer pre-diabetic. Uh, my, my iron, my protein levels are all normal, all good. So I think I was under a lot more stress as an elder and I, I compensated by overeating all the time. Mm-hmm. I don't overeat as much as I used to. I I'm more controlled, more stable. So because I have plenty of time and now, you know, I, I go to the gym five to six days every week. I, lo- I love the gym. It feels so good to work out, to sweat, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I just feel it just it makes my life so much better now. My wife's lost 57 pounds in the same time period. So she's actually lost seven pounds more than I have. Uh, we're in better health. Her back doesn't hurt her anymore. 
And things just feel so much better when you have that, that drive to do something because that paradise is not going to come to give me that perfect body. So I'm trying to do the best I can in the meantime to get in best shape as I can. Yeah, I, I sleep better. My feet don't hurt at work, or, you know, standing on concrete for, for eight to 12 hours. So everything has been a lot better with me physically and mentally in the last two and a half years. That's brilliant to hear. And again, it's something that, um, I mean, my own experience of my health has been dramatically better since I left the religion. And I think part of it is due to that fact that you realize that you're only going to get one meat vehicle to pilot around. It's not going to get magically restored to perfection. It's, you know, you're investing in it. And by going to the gym now, I mean, this isn't the thing with me. I have a very similar workout routine, which ironically I haven't been doing for the past two weeks because of chaos in moving around. But now I'm back on it. And it's kind of like you invest in yourself now because I feel like that's the difference difference between me at 70 still being able to get around and do what I want to do and me at 70 kind of hobbling down the street on a, on a cane, you know, and you see that sometimes in the difference in people. Uh, there's more and more medical research showing that the better the care you take of your body in your, like your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, and even your 50s, the impact it can have on your 60s and your 70s and your 80s is huge. My, um, wife's, been a, my wife's been a nurse for 15 years, mainly in long-term care nursing homes. And the number one reason why people are in nursing homes is lack of mobility. They can't go to the bathroom by themselves. They can't get out of bed by themselves. You know, they can't shower themselves. And the number two then is like, you know, Alzheimer's, dementia. So those people are, might be in great health, but their mind goes. So majority of our people are fine, everything else, but they just can't move. And because they didn't take care of the body, they got too overweight. They didn't exercise. Their their knees, their hips broke down. So that's why I'm trying to stay, stay out of the nursing home. I was in. So you've been very generous with your time, and I don't want to keep you for too much longer. But I would just want to ask you about the campaigning work you've been doing because I know one of the things is you you've been a very outspoken critic of the way Watchtower has been behaving with accusations of child sex abuse and what their policies are, and you've been driving hard both for reform of the way the religion carries out its policies, but also in the way that the state that you live in deals with things like the statute of limitations. So could you give us just a quick chat about what your involvement in that's been and how that's made you feel uh, as a person? Well, I want to go back to 2011 when I became an elder. So the first elders meeting I was in, they had a quarterly elders meeting. They had to give us an update of all the spiritual qualifications of all the people. And that was the meeting that I learned that I was not, my daughter was not the only abused victim in that congregation. So for it, there was a sister who for two years from 1999 to 2001 had a relationship with a 14-year-old boy at the time he was 14 to 16 and she was 24 to 26. So she was, you know, 10 years older than he was. They were going over her qualifications, whether she could pioneer now. Now this was like years after this happened, 10 over 10 years. So I didn't know that went on. I remember she got this fellowship, but I didn't know why. So that was the number one. The number two, there was another young man who had actually kidnapped his teenage sister, biological sister, and raped her when she was 14, he was 19. And I knew he was disfellowship, but I didn't know why. And there was another kid that was my age that 10 years prior in the early 2000s, he was gone for six months and I was asking the elders, where did Josh go? Oh, he moved to Scranton. Oh, okay. Well, here, his mom had a daycare center and he exposed himself to, in front of a room full of toddlers. Now, they weren't witnesses, so of course their parents called the police and he was registered as a sexual offender, went to jail for six months and his res- was on restrictions. So I didn't know that. Now here's this, now he didn't actually touch any kids, but he had actually done this in front of a room. And then there was the fifth case of another man 
who had sexually assaulted a 14-year-old girl at a witness party. This is all in one congregation. And I didn't know any of this until I became an elder. So the reason why I am so outspoken of Watchtower's policy, it wasn't just my case. They didn't call the police. There were four other cases the police were not called for the cases. So the elders in my congregation in York Anna and Spring Grove and Freeland, Maryland, all neighboring congregations broke state laws by not contacting the police when there are accusations of child abuse. Now, the elders at Watchtower will say, well, it's clergy, um, clergy privilege, but they lose that privilege once they discuss the, with the entire body. Exactly. Once, yeah. once they tell the other 15 or 10 elders what's going on, they lost that privilege. They lost that confidentiality. So because, again, I'm 34 years old, newly appointed an elder, and there was another brother who's a little older than me. He was appointed the same time I was. We were brought up to speed with this Jim Bob and Peggy and all these other people's names. So that's why I was so outspoken. So then the first year, 2016, I was contacting journalists. I want to get this story out here, but nobody seemed to want to run the article. Nobody seemed to care in 2016. And then February of 2017, I was on vacation and I was in the car wash when I saw the JW survey article about Stephanie Fessler, who in Spring Grove was abused for two years by a woman the same time as my daughter was. And I saw the court case was less than a week away. So I, I contacted JW survey. That's the first time I con- talked to um, John, John Redwood. Redwood. Yeah. Yes, John Redwood. And I talked to the lawyer, and the lawyer got me to, to Philadelphia, and I had met multiple meetings with him. And then I told him about the circuit overseer's arrangement and how the same elders in charge at Spring Grove, it was Redline. I said the policy hasn't changed because I gave him, you know, because Watchtower was blaming Spring Grove. Spring Grove said they were doing what Watchtower was saying. And then I was deposed, subpoenaed to testify. Uh, the Watchtower tried to strike me as a witness, but the judge overruled it. That was my first foray into, like, let's get this out there. Hmm. And um, because I would be, my, my daughter's abuse was the same month as this woman's abuse. And then when I became an elder, the elders handled the situation the same way as, hmm. as it was in 2005. So they're doing the same thing. Um, so again, we know what happened. Watchtower settled before I got to go on stand. So I wasn't able to, able to, uh, testify in that court case, but that's really got, got me, my appetite wet. Like now <laughs> I have power. I can do something. Yeah. I can fix. Th- so what I did is I, I started contacting the media again. Now this is almost over a year later, February of 2017. And again, nobody seemed to want to run the article. It wasn't the time yet. The Me Too movement hadn't really arrived yet. Mm. And. 2017, we, uh, we, we went to the, our county police. They took months to investigate. October of 2017, a warrant was issued for my cousin's arrest. Finally, to go to 2018. Now the media, are, I keep emails, phone calls, and I've done Harrisburg Patriot News, Philadelphia Inquirer, York Daily Record, uh, Channel 8 News, that's a, a TV show, Channel 21, Channel 27. I've been on interviewed multiple times by different news outlets since then. And I've actually turned some down. I was in, also in the Reading Eagle too. So now I'm trying to get the, the publicity out there. So then in June of this year, June of 2018, the office of Mark Rossi, he's a, a state a congressman from Pennsylvania. He's pushing a bill to eliminate the statutes of limitations laws in Pennsylvania because he was raped by a Catholic priest as a young boy. And at that time in Pennsylvania, you only had two years the time you reached 18 to, to file a civil lawsuit in Pennsylvania. Agreed. And you had 12 years for criminal. 
So that means if you were raped by a priest for five years or six months or twice, it didn't matter, you could not sue the Catholic Church after you were 20 years old. You only had a two-year window, and most 18-year-olds don't even think about that. So now the statute of limitations is 33 and 30. So you have 12 years to sue and 15 years for criminal. But again, in Pennsylvania, that law needs to be changed. So a, a priest could even admit to it, but if, if the victim's 35 years old, nothing can happen to that priest or elder or anybody in Pennsylvania. Mm. So we need to change the laws. So he invited me to speak at the Capitol in Harrisburg because it's not just a, a Catholic thing. It's not just the Penn State University. It's also a Jehovah's Witness thing. It's also the Boy Scouts thing. So I was able to speak there to show that it's not just just Catholics, other religions. Since then, the bill passed the House in Pennsylvania, but the Catholic Church spent millions of dollars and got lobbyists to have the Senate overthrow the bill, the state Senate. So that bill did not get passed as of uh, as of right now. So he's he's going to rework it and try it again because again. The, the Republicans in Pennsylvania care more about money than they care about victims. They care more about protecting the church's finances than they care about getting justice for the kids. So his bill is to have a two-year window that anybody can sue. And then after that two-year window, the statute of limitations for cr- civil lawsuits will go to your 50 and then uh, eliminate criminal statutes. Mm. So right now, even, even to this day, if you're 38 years old, you decide, I want to get this person. You cannot, they, the statutes, they can't be arrested. They can, they, yeah. they can do whatever they want to. So that's, that's where the process is. But since then, that has given me so much more energy to help other people. You know, I've been to marches in, in, in Harrisburg and I've been trying to help other people learn of this issue and expose this issue because again, Our First Amendment in America gives us the freedom of religion. So any man, woman, and child can worship any God in any way they want to. But that First Amendment does not give anyone the right to break state, local, or federal laws. Exactly. And as you were saying, the, the, the thing with child abuse is so often it happens when someone's very young, but they may only get the strength to talk about it when they're much, much older. So on the, the practical terms, that, that statute of limitations needs to be, personally, I don't think there should be one at all. And also on the, the, the legal terms, I mean, it's such a revolting, disgusting crime. You shouldn't be able to hide from it with just the passage of time. It should be like murder. You know, the, the abuse of a child is something, it doesn't matter how old you are, how long ago it happened. If, if it gets discovered, the police should be able to come for you. And justice should be able to grab you by the back of the neck and, you know, and throw you in a jail cell or do whatever's appropriate for the, you know, appropriate sentence for what you did. I just want to say thank you so much for the time you've given us, Martin. I know you're, you're busy. And also, I thank you for talking so frankly about what you've well, been through and what your family have been through as well. I, I, can, I, can I say one more thing, though? Yeah, actually, I, don't, I, I want to mention my brother too in this in this all this. Yeah, because sure. there's another pos- positive. There's actually I want to mention my uncles, my cousin, and my brother. So there's one, there, there's many other benefits from waking up. So for the first month after I left in February, I didn't tell my parents or my family. Now my parents were about an hour away. My brother was living in Indiana, which was about a ten hour drive, and my sister was at Wallkill, which is about three and a half hour drive. But after the memorial, my parents kept texting me, how was the memorial? Well, I was kind of lying to them. I was saying, well, there's never a bad one. You know, how was the attendance? Well, I didn't get the number. But after about a month, I felt really bad. So I wrote a letter to my mom, my dad, my sister, my brother, my my aunts and uncles, and I emailed it to them. And I I got no response from anybody. 
So then after a couple of days, my mom called me up and started screaming at me and yelling at me and you're ruining the family. And I'm like trying to encourage her, try to talk her down. And of course she's, she's, she's totally brainwashed and indoctrinated. She would not listen to me. Um, my father, which makes me really sad. He never, now he's retired. He had all the time in the world. He never drove the hour and a half down to my house. He never called me. He never texted me. And I think about all the time we wasted out in field service like going to not at home is going back to return visits who never answer, you know, 10, 20, 30 times. He never even gave an, a, an effort to uh, help, try to see, try, if this is the truth, why would he try to help it, help his son? Yeah. My mom at least called a couple, a couple times. So then April of 2016, you know, my brother's furious with me. He texts me, he says, can I call you? And I'm like, sure. Yeah, go ahead, Nathan, call me. So he, I was at Home Depot in a parking lot getting stuff for the house. And he start, he calls me and starts crying. I'm like, what's the matter? He said, I can't believe it. You were right. So in his mind, my brother was not allowed to do research about Watchtower. But when I, the elder pioneer, good brother, um, was able to do research, that gave him mentally permission to do his own research. And that month, I didn't know, from March to April, he was doing research. And he found every single thing that I mentioned in that letter was true. Wow. And he, he's like, I'm done. I'm done. I can't go back again. Now, again, he lived in Indiana, so my parents didn't know that he had stopped going. But in June, we had a family reunion, and he didn't tell his wife and him both left, and they came into Pennsylvania, and they stopped at our house, but they didn't tell my parents they were coming here. And then that's when my family, my aunts and uncles, had a little funeral for us because we were dead. And my aunt, who's the missionary in Africa, says, we have to close ranks, we have to tighten up, we have to keep marching forward. We can't look behind us. Like, like I was in a line of soldiers and I got shot down and just step over my dead body and keep marching forward. So my brother's the one that told me all these things. So then we were, we, we, we were both crying. It was so sad. My brother was disfellowshipped in 2002. And so for five years, I didn't talk to him. He was disfellowshipped the day my son was born. And he didn't get reinstated in 2008. And our relationship was never repaired because, you know, I'm an elder. I'm doing all this stuff. He never ever you know did anything in the organization he always felt bad and since then our relationship has been the best in 20 years plus since we both left we're both mentally out and then on i found my mom's two older brothers who left back in the 60s i reconnected with them they're great amazing men i've met them twice in the past two years one lives in down south one lives in california and then i learned that i have a cousin who i never knew i had before so my one uncle who was an alcoholic, who my grandma would always show what happens when you leave. Well, I met him once when I was five years old in 1982, and I've never seen him since then until I left. Well, in 1989, he sobered up, married a woman, and had a kid in the 90s, which I never knew. My grandma never told me. My mom never told me. So I have a cousin who's 27 who I've never met until this year. So even though I've lost a lot of family, I've gained family too. I've become friends with my uncle's my mom's side, I've gained a cousin and I've gotten my brother who's closer to me than he ever has been before. So things, there's been a lot of other great things has happened to me since we've left. That's absolutely wonderful. And it's, it's fantastic as well that you kind of like, you set the example for your brother, like he wasn't going to research, but when you, when you left and you'd done research, it gave him the mental permission to do that. That's just such a fantastic because obviously I know that, you know, for anyone leaving the Jehovah's Witnesses is painful, but it must, it must help so much to know that you leaving, it's not only helped your family and it's not only 
helped all the people who have, you know, you're going to help with your campaigning and your, your activism, but you've directly helped your brother to leave, which is absolutely amazing. Yeah. And, and my brother, Nathan loves, uh, he loves you. He loves John and he also loves the other John too. Or Lloyd. Yeah. Nathan. Hello. Hello. Yes. From us all. <laughs> Oh, that's, well, you've been really kind sharing your story today, Martin. It's been fantastic to get this insight, especially since I think this is an issue that sadly affects so many XJWs. I think it's really useful to have someone who's willing to talk openly about the experience and also about ways they found to cope and to move forward. Because I think, I think the issue, we're very, everyone's very well aware of the problem with the way Watchtower operates. And I think what's also important is to talk about how people put the pieces back together afterward. Um, is there anything else you'd like to talk about or any, any projects you're involved in at the moment that you'd like to draw attention to? Well, I decided after two and a half years, I finally wanted to do a video on YouTube about my life story to help other people just in passing. I don't think I'll be a career, but I just want to get it out there. <laughs> if, if after the lawsuit, if I have to take it down, I will. But right now it's out there. So I made a video last week and I made a, it's going to be three videos. I put two up. Well, the first one already has 6,000 views in one week. And I, <laughs> I, really, I really didn't advertise it too much. And I'm just thinking to myself at work last night, wait a second. So I pioneered for six years total. I, there's no way in six years that I talked to 6,000 people. All those hours driving around, knocking on doors was a lot of wasted effort. In a couple hours of work, my video <laughs> could, has seen and could have helped more people and just two or three hours of my time than six years of pioneering. So if people think that there's nothing you can do to help other people, you're wrong. Anything you can do to help people wake up or people who have left to comfort to help those, you can make a major difference in this organization. Maybe you don't have the tragic backstory that I have, but still your story is very important. Get it out there. Help other people with your story. Be positive. Share your accomplishments. Share your growth. Help other people to see that once we leave Watchtower, life is definitely still worth living. That is awesome. Thank you so much. And I think I think that's a, a great sentiment to end it on. So I'll get your... Also, you're on Twitter, aren't you? Is it it's Hawk yes. Martin? Yes. Yeah. Uh, very original. <laughs> so follow Martin on Twitter at Hawk Martin. And the, does your YouTube channel have a name or is it one of those? Yes. Ones, just a URL. It's, um, my my uh, middle name is John. So I, I kind of copied uh, John and the other John. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm John Martin on, uh, on YouTube. If you want to see my two videos, uh, Saturday I'll upload my third video. Okay, cool. So this should, this podcast should hopefully buy it by Saturday. So um, watch out for that, guys. It's John Martin. He's joining the John Trilogy. Um, we have a trinity of Johns. And uh, also follow, follow him on Twitter to keep track of his, his activism. Um, Martin, thank you so much for everything you've shared with us. And uh, thank you for coming on the Forwardcast. Thank you for having me. So I just have a little postscript to add here. In the time between us recording this interview and it getting published, there has been an update in the proceedings against the uh, abuser. It appears that for reasons relating to the age of the case, the prosecutor has decided not to go forward with the prosecution. I spoke to Martin about this and he told me that he and his family are understandably extremely upset. Apparently the decision was taken without consulting them. But Martin did also comment that if more people had come forward to report their abuse by this individual, because remember there were a number of uh, allegations associated with this person, 
the prosecutor may have been able to go forward with the case. So this really does highlight, I think, the importance of these cases being brought before the authorities as soon as possible and reported in every single instance, which currently, as a direct result of Watchtower policy, is usually not the case amongst Jehovah's Witnesses. So that's very disappointing to hear, and I'm sure all of our hearts go out to the Hawke family. But it's also clear to me that they, um, you know, they will cope and they will move forward because rebuilding after we leave the Watchtower organization is never easy. And it's certainly been even more difficult for them because of what they've all been through. But it's also clear to me that they're, you know, they're on that path to rebuilding. And I think they're an excellent example for all of us in how to, no matter what Watchtower has done to us, no matter what we've lost or what we've had to suffer, it's always possible to start down the road to recovery. And I think Martin and his family are a fantastic example of that. So that brings us to the end of today's episode. I hope you found it useful and we will see you on the next forward cast.